This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. I um, wanted to speak a little bit about somebody who left uh, an incredible mark on our door and myself personally, uh, I guess, a step down the line. Um, whose story is really extraordinary, and that's from Desla. Um, the book that Jonathan Rosemont wrote about him is really, I mean, he, he Kedarko, I, I know him well, he does a tremendous amount of research, goes to everybody that he can, living, and everything that he can find written, puts it together, and, and really puts a lot of effort to it, and it, it's an amazingly good biography. I also know a lot of people that had a cash with him. So, he, I, I would like to s- start off with the way he introduces it in his introduction. In um, 19, the late 1939 or so, somebody sent a letter to 23 Rabbanim in England. 20 of them didn't think it was worth even a reply and they throw into the garbage. Two replied very perfunctory that it's not Nagea, and one person replied that he's interested in the job. That person was in his late 40s. No one had ever heard of him except for a few people here or there. He hadn't written anything. He hadn't in any sense occupied any major position. He was going to die in 12 years. And by answering the letter, he left his mark on the world. That's why he introduced it. And, and it's dramatic, but it's true. Um, to give a little bit of understanding of who Abdesla was and in what way he left a mark um, on, uh, on a generation, I need a little bit background on something called Kelm, because it's a very important part of his life. The Alta, Rabbi Sosalanta, had three main Talmidim, and the Alta of Kelm was one of them. The Alta of Kelm was Rabbi Zisel Ziv, actually, name was Brody, he had to change it because of. Um, you know, when it, uh, somebody uh, mastered him to the government, but his name was Absimchazisel. He was a Talmud of Abisral and very original. He founded a, uh, he took over a yeshiva, sort of, it's called the Talmud Torah in Kelm, small Litvisha shtetl, um, and he ran it. He then, somebody was out to get him. And he told the government, he was mulching something to the government about him, not true. And he had to run away to Latvia, and he opened the yeshiva in Grubin. In Grubin, the yeshiva that he opened was unusual. It was very from. It had various subjects that he taught, and a very strict schedule and things of that nature. He was there for a few years, and then his health was difficult. He went back to Kelm. And Kelm became a center for producing extraordinary Balimusa. He always kept it very small, 30, 35 people at the most. The, 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 the storm there were extraordinarily strict. Everything was by the second. There were five minute storms so that people should learn what the value of five minutes is. Everything was by rotation duties and, and it was run like a living I guess, practice of everything they believed in in Musa. It had to do with Seder. That was one very key element that 
everything be in its time and its place by the right person, um, cleanliness, it's a certain, a certain yekishkeit. There was a very strong sense of emis. They used to add, they didn't kiss the Sefer Torah, and someone asked the Alta Kellum, why don't you kiss the Sefer Torah? And he says, if we don't like it, why would we kiss it? Um, and basically he was saying, don't kiss the Sefer Torah with closed eyes and then do whatever you want to do. If you don't think, if you're not holding by doing what it says, it's not, you know, and it was quite unusual that way. He also had a certain breath. He's, he would, they would learn certain svarim of Ramchal, which were unusual. Um, was not current in those days to learn these things. That was considered, but by and large, it was a place for Anoshim Gedolim. Rabbi Rucham Remir was there. Rabbi Daniel later became the Mashkiach in his last years. It, it, he never wanted to have a lot of people. He wanted to have a select few people. And Rev Desla's father was one of his, I think from Grubinyet, he was one of his closest Talmidim. Rev Desla's father was a wealthy man who um, was also in business, but extraordinary was a Talmud Chochem and tremendous Balmusa. Everything he did was, you know, weighed and measured. He married Rabbi Sol Salanta's granddaughter. Rabbi Sol Salanta had a son in law, Grudensky, and he married his daughter. Someone else who married another daughter of this Grudensky was somebody called Rabbi Chaim Moise Grudensky, who was the Godlador by all counts, and that was Rev Desla's um, uncle, the, the Rebbe we're going to talk about, his uncle. So he was born into a family that was wealthy, very, very yekish, chinuch um, was paramount, and kelm was the world. The early years, until he was about 13 or 14, he was at home, and his father had malamdim for him. They lived in a city called Hummel or Gummel, depending on whether it was Russian at the time or not, and the, um, the, the, the person who taught him was Chabad Chassid. In Gomel, in Hamel was a very big Chabad city. The person who taught him, the Malamed, was a Chabad person. And the family actually dabbled in a Chabad shtibel because in the main shul, there was way too much going on with, with Friar people and Frumma people and people coming and making scenes. Chabad Shtibel was quiet and serious, and that's where it was. He had a very strong Chabad influence. His father also hired tutors to teach him Limurichol, and he had a grounding in mathematics. He, he'd read certain, certain books that they felt were important to read. He knew languages, he, he spoke English very well, and, and was conversant in German, and so on. Um, he, he knew he was a worldly person because that was part of that chinuch. And one day his father found Haskala books by his tutor and he said, you know, I can't keep him at home anymore. And he sent him off to Kelm to learn. He was about a mitzvah boy. People in Kelm were much older. He once said, I mean, he spoke a little bit about Kelm, and he said that he once complained about the food where he was eating, that it's a bit monotonous. The woman was horrified that a Shiva Bacha should think about food. And she went to the Alta Kelm and said, um, you know, this boy, I don't know what's going to be with him. He's, you know, he's giving opinions on the food is good, not so good. So the Alta prescribed, it wasn't the Alta, it was the Alta son already. He prescribed that from that point onwards, 
he should be given uh, oatmeal twice a day until he leaves Kelm, and you know that'll 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 make his appetite like uh, be good. And uh, and so he said, once well, I guess Riley or so that in Kelm, even the lady where you ate was part of the chinuch team. But that's where he was. He sat and learned. He finished shas a few times, and um, quiet. And Kelm very much preached introverts and quiet and so on. He got married in 1920 to um, the daughter of the Rosh Hashiva, of the and he married his daughter. He was offered to be a dying in Vilna. His, un- his uncle offered him to be a dying in Vilna. He refused. He wanted the same life as his parents. He went into business, uh, and family business, some business, which meant two, three hours a day in the business, and, and, and the vast majority of time learning. That was the, the people who could do it. That was the way they did it. Akash Baruch had other plans. Um, this was the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, and the father's fortune was totally destroyed. The, the communists arrested his uncle. His uncle's father went a business. They arrested them, took away the business. They had, his father had converted all his money to Russian rubles. He felt they were winning World War I. Then the Bolshevik Revolution came and they were worth nothing. And he used to carry two suitcases of ruble around, of these ruble around with him. And he would say, a person needs to learn how much money is worth. You have two suitcases and you're a millionaire. And one day you just have two heavy suitcases full of paper to carry around. There's nothing else. His father's health began failing. And he had a tremendous debt load. And there was no way for him to solve his debts in Europe. He had tried other businesses, they fell apart. And he went with his father to England in 1928 without his wife and children. He had a son and a daughter to, you know, for treatment and to make some money so that he can pay back the debts. For three years, his family was with him. He couldn't afford to bring them. He had to save up every penny. And finally, three years later, he bought his family. And this was 1931 already. He, um, he struggled. He taught, he, he, he had small shuls that he was a rav of. It didn't pay all that much. And he had a few tutoring jobs. One of them was an extremely wealthy Sassoon family, with the famous wealthy Sassoon family, whose son was a guy in Arlam. He unfortunately died relatively young, but he was a guy in Arlam, and he was his private tutor. Um, and really worked with him hours of every day learning, and this was his satisfaction. And slowly he had a few Talmidim here, there, Rabbi Carmel. That was from 1931 till the end of the 30s. Not much happening. At the end of the 30s, well, actually earlier than that, his son, he never sent him to public school there. He felt that his son didn't want to become a guy. He had a private tutor for him. The police came once or twice, and, and but they went. At the age of 13, he sent him to Tells in Europe to learn. In 1939, the war was already looming, and his wife and daughter decided to go back for a last time to visit family in Kelm. They went back, his son was in Tells, the war came, and there was no, nobody was coming back anymore. His wife and daughter were shipped out to Australia. And they spent the next seven years or so in Australia. 
with a lot of refugees that the government had decided they didn't want to bring them in. They were scared. It was complicated. And they shipped them. There were a lot of from people actually who ended up in Australia. His son ended up in America. And for the next seven years, he would not see his family again. In 1939, he, he was a rather, in 1939, he fled London for the countryside because of the bombing. He got this letter that we started with. This letter was from a Dayan in Gateshead called Reb David Dryan. He had been very instrumental in getting the yeshiva going a few years before. And now there are a whole bunch of refugees and he wanted to start a coil for them. A coil in those days was, I mean, just in England, had no shaykhs to reality. And he sent a letter to 23 Rabbanim that he would like them to become Rosh Kail. 20 Rabbanim didn't bother to reply to the letter. They felt just, it's like a crank call, uh, nothing worth replying to. Two were more menshech. They said, yeah, we're, we're, we're busy at present and we, we don't think we can do it. Rev Desla took the job. He felt he could accomplish something. And his Talmudim were very upset in London, so he basically agreed he would go in Gateshead most of the week and travel back once a week to London to attend his Talmudim. He'd write them letters, he'd write them schmoozen, and he said he felt that he lived on a train most of the time. The next, the war years, which was from 40 to 46, 47, had he not been alone without his family, he could never have done what he did. But he went to Gateshead most of the week, kept his cash with Talmidim in London, and he slowly began to have Talmidim. The Kuala and Gateshead got off the ground, they built a girls' seminary, and he started becoming a shpia. He was a phenomenal speaker, he was an extraordinarily deep person, an extraordinarily disciplined person, and he was able to give over a tremendous amount and those wretched years he spent commuting back and forth, um, killing himself to do what he, he was, um, what he felt he was supposed to do. In 1946, he finally was reunited with his wife and daughter. They came, so he after the war. His son had gotten married in the middle, in America, and they weren't able to come. So all he had was letters. To show what Kelm is, you can imagine how lonely he was. In Kelm, they had tremendous self-discipline. And somebody was sitting with him, and a letter came with pictures. And the Revdesa picked it. It was clear it had pictures in it coming from Australia. And Revdesa <coughs> took the letter, and he put it down on a table. And uh, it's Talmud asked him, what are you doing? He said, they taught us self-discipline. I'm going to wait a quarter of an hour till I open the letter. A person needs to be able to control himself in all matzav. That was Kel Mechinach. Um, his family was finally reunited in 1946. His son, he still hadn't seen. And I don't think till a year later they went to America and, was, and he was able to see his son married. He had a son and daughter. His son, it was named Rebnochen Velvodesla. He got, um, he passed away a few years ago. He opened up a, a, a yeshiva high school, a, whole, a school in, in the, the Hebrew Academy in Cleveland. And his children now run it. And his oldest son actually is a, a wealthy man who supports a lot of good things. 
his daughter married a very Hasidish person, called Hasidish Yeshiva's gold sailor, very Hashatam Chacham, Hasidish person. At any rate, in 1946, 47, Panevich Rav approached him to come to Panevich Yeshiva and become a Shkiach. Um, he was very reluctant to leave England. On the other hand, it was an opportunity. And he wavered and he said he'll come for a Tkufa to try it out. He came for a few months to Eretz Yisrael and he wrote that the, the depth of Machshavas that he had in Eretz Yisrael, he never had in Chutzlarz, Eretz Yisrael is Machkim, he has to go there. He went back and he made sure that um, the, the kolo was properly taken care of. He had been raising all the money for it. It was supposed to be a shutas in him and Rabbi David Ryan, but Rabbi David was able to raise much money, and he raised almost all the money. The Sidri Alimud, the Younger Light, everything was on him. And he said, until that's not in place, it's not going to. He's not going to uh, give. A, he's not going to leave. He felt that it was in place, and it was it continued. And then he went to Israel. At Panovich was a big yeshiva in those days, had probably 200 Talmidim, was, was many ways the foremost yeshiva, heaven Panovich. Um, and he had a platform to say Shmuzin like uh, n- never anyone else. He, um, he said three times a week and he blew people away. It was so different. The typical Musa Shmuz was people getting up and very, very emotional about how bad you are and so on and so forth. He spoke depth, um, what we'd call today hashkafa, analysis of human nature. Um, his first shmuz in front of which he called Reb Tzaddik and explained Reb Tzaddik. People were flabbergasted. They didn't know what Reb Tzaddik was. He was extremely, extremely conversant with all Hasidus. He, 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 he had learned a lot. It, there were things he liked, whatever it is. And he, and, and he said him over. There were Tkufis when he would say names, and Tkufis he wouldn't say names. Um, people were astounded. There was somebody wrote that, that on a day that he said a shmuz, he would have trouble afterwards focusing on his Gemara because his mind was, was, was pounding the shmuz. Um, it, it opened up a world to, 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 to Litvish Yeshivas that saw that they had never been opened up before. There were people that were unhappy with it. There were shivas that were quite unhappy with it and told him, why doesn't just stick to the normal? Well, what, what's this all about? We never heard this before. It's not. There were plenty of people that were kind of, um, let's call it um, icy towards it, but he had Talmidim that were believable nefesh. They felt he changed their lives. And these were very big people. Um, and one of those people had a profound influence on me, and that was Rabbi Shapiro. Um, he was Sahakol from 1948 to 19, or 1948-49. He was in America for a few months to visit his children for the first time, his son. And he passed away in 1953. He was in his early 60s, 61, 62. Um, so he was a person who spent most of his life unknown, very, very tumultuous life, and 
his good years were the last, if you want to count from 1940 to 53, or you want to count from 1948 to 53. Those are the years that were his um, years that he spoke to the Tzibur. And, and that made an incredible change. And I do want, I want to explain some of the ways in which it changed things. <coughs> it really was the first Sefer that spoke about topics and gave over an understanding of a topic. In other words, the Sefer was not just a, a, a way to make you much more motivated to what's right, which is, which is very important in its own right. But it was something that was extremely important in he, he laid out the map of what we call Hashkafa, basic understandings of basic tenets of faith, of of uh, of issues, and so on. He was he also he created a language to translate from Kabbalah, from Hasidus, from other areas to a layman language, where it retains much of the meaning but is understandable. He opened up Sfarim that never was seen in a literature yeshiva and, um, and they became, for some of the people who took to it, they became uh, a Sfarim that they, they got into. Uh, Ramon Shapiro slept by him the last two years of his life. His, his Rebson passed away 51 and they needed somebody to be with him. Ramon Shapiro was a uh, relative, somewhat distant relative somewhat, and he was 15, I think, at the time. He was, he was born in 35, so the, the, um, he slept with him, and he said that he had three layers of sfarim, and he said, you know, the, 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 um, there was the, the outside sfarim, there's the inner sfarim, and the inner inner sfarim. That's how it worked. And he opened up this world, so what we call today machshava of, of any type, he was the gate of it. Amos Shapiro would speak about him, not as a Rebbe per se, but as the person who opened up worlds for me. That was the way he, he, he would speak on his yard site. Haftal Tevez's yard site. He would speak, um, he would speak every year on, on his yard site. He would say a shmuz for the person who gave me the, the, he opened up the doors for me. That's the way he described it. He didn't learn most of his things by him, but it was the person that gave him a, a open. Um, I want to tell over two stories that I heard one from my Shapiro and one from someone else who was in the house there at some other time. First, the, the other story. I once had a Yid here of Oza. He's the, um, he's the Menial of, of Lomja, S- same age. And he said that Rev Desla in his apartment in in Nebrak, the last year too had people here wouldn't know what it is. Um, in the old days, I mean, it, it, before they had like deodorant spray, like sprays. So if a person wanted perfumes, women, they would have like this crystal bottle with like a tube and and a hand pump. Um, and you would perfume, you would you would perfume yourself with it. It was a very feminine uh, kind of, um, you know, not 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 yeshivish. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and he had one on his counter, and the bachim were there one purim, and they and they chepped him about it and 
he didn't say anything, just smiled, and they, you know, they made some, some comments about it and snapped. I think this person of Oza told me that after Ravdesa passed away, Moshe Shapiro told him, let me explain what, what it's about. He said when his relative passed away, he would give his laundry to someone else to do it, you know, to uh, outsources, whatever. He felt, how can I make somebody else unpleasant to give him things that don't smell well? So he would spray his things with perfume before he gave it, so the person shouldn't be nifka from the rear. This person's business was doing laundry, but his adinas and nefesh. That's what that thing was all about. Another story Moshe Shapiro told me once was he was a young boy when he was in Ravdessa's house, and he was reading poetry, secular poetry, not not from poetry. He had a liking for things. Or Moshe was very, um, it's very broad. And he liked uh, things. And Rav Desla caught him. And Rav Desla told him, if you enjoy poetry, then you must make a seder in Maral. In other words, what's, what, what's, uh, um, what's special about poetry is the ability to say things in metaphor rather than in prose. You, you're, you're saying things dressed up as something else, and that's its beauty. That's the beauty of poetry. You're putting it into something that gives an atmosphere, uh, a lens, a certain air to something. And in a different way, morale is the same approach to it. And I think he felt that this was a turning point in his life. He was, I don't know how old he was, he could have been 15 at the time, 16. But he felt that this made a difference. But the tremendous understanding of people, human nature, that story, and um, somebody else would be, you know, with Shagetsim, with, with whatever, he, he immediately understood that he has a need that's not being fulfilled by just the Gemara, and that need would be parallel somewhere else. Um, he didn't pu- publish any sperm in his in, while he was alive. He used to write stencils, letters, stencils. He would stencil them off to the people back in England when he was in Gateshead. He would write to people in England, and, and you know, and so on and so forth. Lemaisa, after his ptira, two of his Talmidim took all the stuff they'd written, the letters he had written and the shmuz that had been written down and so on, they put them together as Mechtav Melio and that's where the Mechtav Yor comes from. Um, in my days when I was growing up, Mechtav Yor was the go-to safer for any Hashkafic issue. And the things that he said were considered to be the Aleph base of, of any type of, of Hashkafa, of, of understanding, basic understandings. Um, he pioneered, he was able to converse with all sorts of academic people, friar people, different people, and he understood their world, understood the language, and he was Makar of a lot of people. A lot of, he was probably the first person who was Makar of people, because people took to him. He, he also was able to address modern issues, science, things of that nature, because he had to deal with it. People in England were not yeshiva-lite, they asked questions and he gave answers, and much of what he wrote has become like the basics of what we call the Ashkafa. So upon him, it's an extraordinary life because he had almost no life. He was lived at 61, 62. He um, spent most of his life in obscurity. He um, he, he got married and came out, never got a chance to see his family. 
to think it is that you know seven years eight years after you're married you're gone for three years total three years gone means three years gone not seeing it at all and then sending your son away at the age of 13 14 and not seeing him till he's married already with a kid the first time he saw him he was married with a kid and um, not seeing a wife and daughter for six years uh, your daughter left you left her a little girl and she's a grown woman when she comes back he recognized Ashkoch in that had had he had a family at the time he couldn't have done what he did and his aura would never have shown in the world he built in England Tyra is from that nexus in Gateshead between the Kolo, the Shiva was there already but the Kolo became an extraordinary powerful institution the the girls schools the Shurim for Balbatim, the Talmidim he collected and so on that built up, that began the, the push for Torah in England. He came to Israel and established a cadre of people, Rabbi Chaim Friedlander, Rabbi Shapiro, Rabbi Sachameya. These were people that he had a profound influence in the world of Machshava, in the world of understanding. It opened up for the people who wanted, needed, and and Irish Hashem on, on, on this, in this path, um, the ability to talk about it, the words, the language, the setting, the, the, the everything about it. Um, everybody, uh, you know, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro was, was a giant, but the assault of it came from Avdesta being able to give him that transition to it. Not only telling him, but giving the explanations. It's a very, th- that, that connection where you can connect from one language, the patch, that you can connect from one language to another language, was the critical piece. Um, and then he comes to Israel, and four years later he's Nifta, five years later he's Nifta, and those four or five years, that's, that's when he left his impact on the world. Um, his entire life, his entire short life was a preparation for those years, and, and that's when his Torah came out. Um, it's an extraordinary story, and it's something that his yard site is Chavdala Tevis, a month uh, from now, and um, it's something that I see what I got as being mostly Rubik from Shapiro and Moshe Shapiro's starting point, the one that, that everything starts with, was Rev Desla. Um, so I'll go upon him. It's a, it's, a, it's a life well worth pondering.